Good evening, everybody. Topic tonight is avoiding selfish spirituality and exploring the benefit of an underground dog fence. Underground pet fence. We're going to explore what that means and how it's relevant to our conversation. But we'll start off with an email. I actually got a few this week. One from Reb Chaim Lapkin from the holy city of Sfas. And uh, he was sharing with us the exercise of having in mind at the end of Shemona Esrei when we ask that Hashem should make ourselves like Ofar. And uh, he was elaborating on how meaningful that exercise was for him. Received another, another email as well regarding the three levels we spoke about last week. Just to remind ourselves briefly, we had the three circles. We had the circle of concern, things that are on my mind. We have the circle of influence, namely the people in my life that I feel I can impact. And then we had that third circle of control the only thing I have control over is myself. So, let's read the second paragraph of this email together. Very insightful. In the last year, the Rav discussed how there are three levels. What I can control, only myself. What I can influence, and the broader interest circle. The question I have is, it would seem to be clear where the circle of control of oneself ends and influence of your surroundings begin. However, can we differentiate between, how can we differentiate between influencing your surroundings and the more, and the broad general interest category? Meaning, how do I know when to say, well, all I can control is me, so everything outside of that is out of my control almost using that as an excuse. If the kids are acting in a manner that requires discipline, well, I can't control them. So where do we draw the line between what is my circle of influence and what is beyond? I'd like to elaborate on the question. <clears throat> Maybe to even broaden the question. The last six Vadim that we've had together, we've really explored a lot of the, the inner workings of the human being. The idea that we got into last time was stepping outside of ourselves or realizing that I am not my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my experiences, but I'm the moshel. I'm the one in control of what I think and how I feel and how I allow myself to react. The therefore of that was, when we speak about having more life and more vitality and more passion, more chius, by recognizing the control that I have, I am the creator, I am the observer, I am not limited or, or confined by the thoughts or emotions that might be going through my head, then I, I could be more of a connoisseur of picking out the exact emotions 
for the right time and the right place, and then feeling them with intensity. Part of this question, where maybe we could use this as an excuse, listen, I can't solve the world's problems, I'm trying my best, and we almost use it as a justification not to really influence and uplift and encourage others around us. Or we might use it as a rationale not to take care of my responsibilities in life, children, job, spouse, because all I control is myself. I can't control him. I've tried for many years. He doesn't really listen to me. But part of the question is not only can we potentially use this as, as an excuse not to do the things that I should be doing, but it almost becomes an exercise in selfishness. The more we focus on ourselves, the more I think about me, who am I, what am I thinking, what defines me, I only have control over my own reactions and the way I respond, isn't there a massive danger that that could lead to a sense of being self-absorbed? Do you appreciate that question? Am I making any sense? So it could be used as a justification not to be concerned over the, the things and the people I should be concerned about. But it could also be focusing on me can make me selfish. So what I want to do today is actually deviate a little bit from the the shelshelis hamachshava, the, the flow of what we've been developing, taking a step back and, and analyzing why is this whole project not feeding into a selfish, unhealthy, um, egotistical feeling? Any ideas before we jump in? Oh, so I'm doing it to work on myself. The whole idea is to make myself a better person, and that's noble, and that's holy. Question is, if I'm always thinking about perfecting myself or using the Hebrew phrase, shleimus, we're searching for perfection, I want to make myself a better person, or nowadays it's self-actualization. For what purpose? So I think this is a very, very fundamental question we have to tackle this evening. For what purpose? Why are we doing this? Why are we climbing into our heads and analyzing our thoughts and feelings and clarifying and, and identifying who we are and who we're not? And why doesn't this process make me more self-absorbed? But to the contrary, this could actually make me more selfless and more of a giver. It could develop within me empathy and love and compassion in a way that I've never experienced before. Question? Okay. So the truth is, uh, question, yes?
Well, it's more, it's more right, right here and now, as we're going through our lives, as we're trying to implement some of these ideas into our relationships, into our Vodas Hashem, how do we stay away from the potential pitfall of using it as an excuse? I'm only in control of myself, I can't impact you, Nebuch. And how do we stay away from the concern of making this more about me than something much broader? I want to share with you a question. Um, it was during one of the ladies' shirim after Kiddush a couple years ago. It was a Q&A session. So somebody raised their hand and they asked the following question. Rabbi, how many years did you learn in yeshiva for? Okay, so I wasn't sure where she was going with that. She was testing my credentials. <laughs> so I told her, she said, you know, there are many people that learn like their whole lives, like 20, 30 years. We only have 14 years. I thought that was fairly impressive. But So then her follow I was wondering, where are you going with this? The question was, not to be offensive, but isn't that very selfish? Right? You have all of, these, all of these young men who are learning for years. They're leeching off of society. They're not really contributing in a productive way. They're not getting a job. What do you do? I learn. Right? It, it seems like it's very selfish. I remember when I was in yeshiva, somebody asked me, so I'm curious, how many, how many more years do you think you have of learning? At the time, I was probably like 20. So I answered, Emirates Hashem, about 80-ish, hopefully. Oh, so there definitely is a concept where just because I'm learning and I'm somewhat secluded from the rest of the world, we do believe the learning has an impact on the entire, the entire universe. But I want to address this question and then apply it to our, our conversation here. This is a beautiful piece from Reb Matis Yahu Solomon Shlita, the great Mashkiach in Lakewood, where he writes, Ha'olam Einu Choshev Kain, the world doesn't feel, they don't believe that what we're doing, and he's speaking to young men who are learning all day, the world doesn't believe that you're actually giving and uplifting and supporting humanity by sitting here in the base medish and learning. People look at us and they view us as takers, that we're doing something selfish. And then, says Ramatisio Solomon, I'll tell you the truth, sometimes they're right. right. Only someone of his caliber can say this. Sometimes that critique might be correct. If while we're learning, it doesn't mean every second as we're sitting there we have to keep on reminding ourselves of this knowledge, but if it's not on our conscious mind that the work that we're doing, the hours and hours a day that we're investing in learning Torah, is for the Klal, it's for the benefit of Klal Yisrael, it's to help bring Shefa and Bracha and protection to the world. If we don't have that in mind, 
So then even though intrinsically, like Avi said, we're definitely doing something that's giving to humanity, but we could fall into the trap of becoming those who take. We might think we're taking with a, with a heter. There's a good reason as to why I'm sitting and learning, because it's a mitzvah. It's the greatest mitzvah in the world. Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam. But explains Ramatis Yahu Solomon, if that's the only thing that you have in your mind as you're learning, that I'm allowed to do this and it's a wonderful mitzvah, but you don't also have the machshava, you don't have the motivation that by me sitting here and really toiling in Torah to my utmost, I am giving to the world, I am helping those who are far away from Yiddishkeit to feel closer. And in some spiritual, metaphysical way, I am infusing bracha through my learning. If that never crosses your mind, then yes, the world may be correct, that you will become more selfish. Hakol talui b'kavanes halev. Like many things in life, the mashkiach concludes, it is all dependent on my motivation. Why am I doing this? So that means you could have two people sitting next to each other in the base medush. You could have a chavrusa learning with each other. One guy has in mind the broader picture. This is my way of serving the Jewish people. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm sacrificing and I'm giving up on many other things that I could be doing instead. But I'm doing this on behalf of Kalal Yisrael. And his chavrusa might not be thinking that. That might never cross his mind. One person is taking, one person is giving. Hakol talui b'kavanas halev, and I think this is very true in a project like this. Why am I working on myself? Why are we trying to identify who I really am and who I'm not? Why am I trying to become a better person? Why am I striving to become a Moshel, to be one who's in control of my thoughts and my feelings? Not just because I want to be a better person, I want to have higher levels of shleimus and perfection, but I want to be a no-sane. I want to be someone who gives selflessly, with love, without limitation. So hakol talui b'kavanas halev, it's all based on our machshava, on our motivation as to why we're doing this. It's interesting, in the secular world, the topic of spirituality, what, what connotation or what image comes into your head when you think of spirituality outside of, of Judaism, outside of religion? Yoga, yoga definitely. Right. Yoga pops in, right? Meditation, probably. Let's say outside of religion. Music, okay. That's good. Organic, maybe. <laughs> Granola, that used to be, you know. Spirituality in, in the way that it's marketed. Is it, is it speaking to the part of you that wants to give to others? and wants to truly be Moser Nefesh, giving of yourself? Or is it almost exploiting the selfish part of who you are? 
I still have 10 more minutes of meditation. Please don't bother me right now. No, I can't help you because I have to be in yoga class in five minutes. Theoretically, the pursuit of spirituality can be a very selfish pursuit. This doesn't mean that yoga is a bad thing or meditation is not helpful. Meditation is actually very helpful. And Mirza Shem, we're going to explore different forms of meditation that we find within Yiddishkeit. Even within religious life, frumkeit or religious fervor can also be coming from a very selfish place. Why do I want to be learning more? Why do I want to be davening more? Why do I want to work on my midos? Even that might be because I'm so obsessed with me. Rebbe Volba has a, a famous piece where he speaks about the idea of, of frumkeit. What is the best translation we have of frumkeit? If you get a good translation, I'll give you an extra piece of sushi. It's very hard to translate. We'll call it a religious fervor. Writes Revolba in source number three. He says, Frumkeit he dachav tivi. Instinctivi. Frumkeit itself is actually, it's instinctual. It's almost this, this need for pushing ourselves forward, for being able to survive and to thrive. It's something that's natural. Frumkai tivis zuozeris lanu bavodos Hashem, and theoretically, this, this inner drive can help us in our, in our avodos Hashem and coming closer to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. However, Frumkai because it's natural and because it's coming almost from that animalistic part of who we are, it's very much about me, about my goals, about my pursuits, about what I need to achieve. And therefore, this particular force within a human being, it propels us only in a direction that I feel is beneficial for myself. It might be garbed in religiosity, but the push that I have, the, the fire within me, is coming from a selfish pursuit. When it comes to my interactions with other people, or doing something with a real sincerity, where I want nothing back, I want no recognition, I'm doing it just because I'm seeking truth and I love truth. Those things will not come from Frumkeit. Reb Dessler, the way that he expresses this idea, he says, sometimes we might give and we might be involved with chesed, but it's always with a cheshben, always with some calculation of what am I gaining from this? It might not even be conscious. Why am I being nice to you more so than to you? Why am I spending more time with him than with her? Where is that coming from? If we start asking ourselves these questions, we might discover 
because I feel I have more to gain from this interaction than that interaction. It's not necessarily because I feel that he needs encouragement right now more than she does, but everything becomes a business transaction. Might not be related to money, but there's always a give and take within my head. So even when I'm doing a chesed, explains Reb Dessler, my giving to you might actually be an expression of selfishness because I'm doing it to get something back for me. Kalal Hadover, the guiding principle is Hashoev La'atzmo. If my main thing that I'm seeking is really for myself, Lo Yavod Ela'atzmo, I'm not serving my fellow human being, I am not serving God, I am serving me. To take it even a step farther back, if we were to ask the most powerful question, that any human being has ever addressed, namely, why am I here? Lama anachnu po? What are we doing here? A pretty basic question. Why did Hashem create everything? What's the simple answer to that question? We have no clue. <laughs> That's the simple answer. We have no clue. You can't climb into the mind of the infinite. We have little insights and a glimpse from Chazal as to why were we created, what are we supposed to be doing here? The way that the Chassam Sofer explains it, he says that the neshama of a human being we know is godly. The essence of who I am is divine. And before the neshama came into this world to dwell in this physical reality, it was able to see and perceive the entirety of the universe. However, when the neshama was implanted into your body, then nistamu eneha meafurios chomro. The eyes, the awareness of the neshama was dulled, it was numbed by the dirt and the physicality of this world. And the neshama is thinking to itself, why do I need to be doing this? Why do I need this? To leave the, 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 the reality, to leave Shemayim, and to be forced down here, to be totally unaware and living in darkness without the oxygen I need to have the flame of the, of the real neshama radiate. Why do I need this? So what's the answer to that question? Explains the Chassam Sofer. V'tovla l'tzamtzem ora. It was Kadai, it was worth it for my neshama to limit its light and to be placed into my body for however long we have. For what purpose? To arrive at the real goal, which is to emulate Hashem, to be godly, to follow in the ways of the infinite to be a mashpia lezulasa, to be able to influence and to give to somebody else, to be able to share of the light that we have and make someone else's day a little bit brighter. Because the one thing that we have down here that doesn't exist up in the Shemayim is the ability to be a mashpia, the ability to give, to be a nosein, to emulate Hashem in that way. In Shemayim and Olam Haba, 
Everything that's happening is in the Bechina of being Mechabal, is in the realm of receiving. We're basking in the glory of the infinite, but we no longer have the opportunity to give. The one reason that at least we know of and relate to explains the Chassam Sofer as to why we're here is to be able to emulate Hashem through becoming selfless givers like HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So HaKol Tali B'Kavana, it is all based on our intention. And I think this is where the example of the underground pet fence comes into play. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who here has even heard of the underground pet fence before? Okay, okay, not bad, a few people. <laughs> the first question is, what is the point? If you're going to have a fence, why not just have a regular fence? Why does it have to be underground? So the truth is, <clears throat> the wireless pet fence industry started to gain momentum in the 1970s. And the, uh, the main goal was protecting dogs and cats and other pen, pets and making image-concerned owners happy. I might not want a big fence or gate in my front lawn, so no need. And as suburbs become uh, more of a, of a hotbed, people are moving out of the big cities, sometimes you have homeowner associations where they have restrictions, you're only allowed to have a fence this tall, or it can't be as expansive as you feel you need to protect your animal. And therefore, the underground pet fence is the ideal way of protecting your loved one. How does it work? So it's basically a psychological device. There's a collar that you place around the dog, and it has a transmitter system inside the collar. As it approaches the area where you set up this underground wire, there's a beeping sound that starts as a warning for the animal that he's getting closer to where the boundary is. And then if he keeps on going, if he ignores the warning, then there's some level of correction, a correction of your choosing, either static electricity or it could spray citronella, something that does not harm the dog, but it scares it enough to keep it back from going uh, past the boundary. One caveat is that this electric fence will not work if it's not combined with training. So meaning in the beginning, when you first install the, uh, the entire system and you put the transmitter on the dog, you have to bring the dog to the fence and, and show him or her this is what happens if you pass this line. It's very uncomfortable. So the combination of training and experience will make it that that dog never goes past its boundaries. An underground fence cannot contain an untrained dog. The goal of what we're doing, the goal of trying to take control over ourselves and perfect even the word perfect is, is really, it's a very imperfect word in this context. We're never going to perfect ourselves, but the goal of becoming more aware of who we are and therefore having more of a shlita, more of a, a control of how I feel, when I feel, and being able to separate myself from some of those thoughts and feelings. The boundaries that I had until now don't have to keep me boxed in.
So I'll give you an example. If I know that I get annoyed when you and I speak about a particular subject, so without much thinking, I'm annoyed at you. If I take a step back and I actually ask myself the question, why am I feeling this way? First of all, what, what emotion is it that I'm sensing? Even asking that question opens up a whole new world of insight. It's maybe coming from some level of jealousy. I hate admitting that to myself because I don't want to feel that I'm jealous of you, but maybe that's where it's coming from. Or maybe it's coming from some level of resentment, you know, based on the relationship, what it was in the past, and me holding on to some of those feelings. What happens, though, is that when we never address and become aware of the boundaries that have been created in our mind, so then as soon as we get close to one of those boundaries, it gets very uncomfortable. The beeping sound starts. And if we keep on going forward towards our perceived limitations, then it becomes very uncomfortable to the point where I just retreat. I can't get out of that headspace. This is very true with anxiety. Oftentimes, once I do something, and then it makes me feel uncomfortable, so I might try it again. If it makes me feel more uncomfortable the second time, then what happens? The easiest response is, I'm going to stay away from that. What we're doing is we're basically creating this, this structure, this box, where we're limiting ourselves based on either emotions we're not fully in touch with, based on trauma, based on anxiety, based on jealousy, and I don't even know that's why I'm not going here. So my whole reality becomes this very limited exposure. I'm not really in life. I'm not embracing my relationships. I'm not jumping into Avodah Hashem because everything is seen through the prism or the lens that I've created for myself. You don't have to have a real fence there to have a boundary. The goal of becoming aware of some of these walls, these mechitzos that we've built for ourselves over the years, is to be able to become, and forgive me for the analogy, that brave dog. What does the brave dog do? It gets closer and it starts hearing the beeping. And then it keeps on getting closer. And there's more beeping takes one step forward and then citronella, right? Or some level of electricity that's making me feel very uncomfortable. What do I do now? Do I retreat? Or do I say, you know what? I could handle this. This is not comfortable, but I'm pushing forward and beyond this. And then once you're beyond that, then you're free. You're no longer restricted. So hakol tolui bekavanas halev, this entire endeavor, all of our avodas Hashem as we try to revamp and rework the hardwiring hard within ourselves, it's not because I want to be better for me, not because I'm striving for perfection. My goal in life is to be doma to Hashem, is to emulate the ways of the infinite. And there are so many barriers that I've created holding me back from doing so.
I want to break through these barriers through becoming aware of what they are and gaining the tools of how to actually destroy them and move past them. Not for me, but to be more elevated, to be more, to be more doma to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, to emulate the divine ways of Hashem. I want to give you a, an exercise this week which is somewhat subtle. This requires thinking, finding that right moment, but it's a very powerful tool in, again, becoming more aware of what's actually happening in our heads and reinforcing the fact that what's happening is not me, but I have control over what's going on. The next time we find ourselves in a conversation, a communication, it could be an email, it could be schmoozing with somebody, and I get that sense of a negative emotion. Whatever it may be, I don't have to label it, but there's definitely something here that's bothering me about this back and forth. To be able in the moment to have the, the, the recognition, this is not as much about you as it is about me discovering a boundary that I may have. I'm not saying to break through the boundary. That could be for a different time. But just having that consciousness, as I'm in the middle of an interaction and I feel these emotions swelling up within me, something is not right, something is not healthy, something is, is very negative. Right then and there, remember, one second, this might not be as much about you. I, I still may think you're totally wrong and insensitive and hurtful. That all may be true. But to realize this is actually a very, very happy discovery because I'm, I'm, I'm finding out one of the boundaries that might be keeping me back from becoming more godly. Question. That's a great question, right? The, the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin that we all have to say and believe the world was created for me. The reason why that's a little bit complex is because everyone's saying that. So just like the world was created for me, it was also created for you. Oh, so yeah, the truth is there's a lot of depth here, and maybe we could explore that topic more at length a different time. But at least for now, this is a very difficult exercise, but I think it could be a uh, game changer. Okay, have a great night.